Welcome everyone to the first edition of Fighters and Writers on MMATorch.com. My name is Alvin Benjamin Carter III. I'm your torch specialist here, and I'm on the line with Rich Hansen. Hello, this is Rich Hansen. I'm an MMA torch contributor. Uh, I'm known on the site as the MMA Glow Torch. I have absolutely no credentials whatsoever, and I'm just happy to be here. Up next here we have Danny Alexis. Hi, I'm Daniel Alexis. Um, I'm a fighter. Um, I fight kickboxing and MMA, and I try boxing sometimes. Then, well, before I go pro, um, I also have an associate from Northeastern and bachelor's from UMass Boston. And Ryan McDermott. What's up? I'm Ryan. Uh, I am a manager, coach, and team fighter at Redline Fight Sports. Uh, all the while trying to be an architect during the day. Happy to be on for the first show. All right, everybody. So now we're going to do a sound off. The first person we're going to go to is Ryan. All right. First thing I'm sounding off today on uh, is Kim Winslow's suspect officiating at this past weekend Strike Force. Uh, thing that bothers me the most about it is that I'm very much a fan of how in Japan they let their fighters go out on their shield. And what she did this weekend was an absolute embarrassment to the sport. It was a bloodlust thing, whether she knew it or not, and if it continues to happen, unfortunately, I think we will see more deaths in the cage like we just heard about the other day with Mark Kirkham, uh, as sad and unfortunate as it may be. But uh, her complete ineptitude for the officiating position needs to seriously be looked at by commissions throughout the country and handled as soon as humanly possible because it is an embarrassment to professional MMA. Next, Daniel Alexis. Well, I would like to talk about how I would love to see more crossover fighting um, in the UFC. As for, as for, I would like to see, you know, probably either catch weight or, or more weight classes. Because there are a lot of dream fights that could come true if we had more weight classes or if we had more catch weight fighting. Rich Hansen. In the year 2004, UFC promoted a total of five pay-per-view events. They sold 415,000 buys combined. If you wanted to watch Pride, good luck to you. Strikeforce didn't even promote mixed martial arts yet. The lead C had yet to open up shop and blow through $42 million of out of business. Fast forward to 2010. We are currently in the midst of a 15-week stretch of time where UFC, Strikeforce, and Bellator will combine to promote 25 events. And of those 25 events, every single one of them was either a fantastic card from top to bottom, had an unbelievable fight on it, or had a sensational headline that everyone was talking about days afterwards. I'm talking to you, Strike Force Nashville. During this show, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Fedora Mellon Anklin's loss to Fabrizio Verdun. After Fedora lost, and not more than 10 seconds after the credits rolled on the show, everyone in the world seemed to have formed an intransigent opinion on what this fight meant. And in the rush to crush everyone else's stupid and ignorant opinions with their own stupid and ignorant opinions, the entire world seems to have forgotten just how fortunate they should feel to be a mixed martial arts fan in the year 2010. Alvin Carter here. I'm going off about how Fedor lost to Fabrizio Werdum. I'm not quite upset with the decision because everyone can lose. I mean, it is a fight. And it might actually kind of kind of make UFC the more dominant, of course, UFC is already the dominant promotion, but with now all the top heavyweights, save Alistair Overeem, depending on uh, whose ranking you're looking at, now in the UFC, that was uh, uh, pointed out by uh, Jamie on MMA Torch, and a number of other people, I'm sure, have noticed that. But I like to look at the fact that BJJ is still relevant, and it was used to take out the last emperor. So with these sound-off topics, we're going to uh, take some time to, to hit them all up. Let's go to Ryan's first. I'm, I'm actually going to kick that off. I completely agree, Ryan, that Tim Winslow's officiating was suspect because, you know, while people want a good show and refs are supposed to push action, they're supposed to know when to stop. What actions do you think they should probably take, uh, you know, as far as suspensions or, like, complete stripping of credentials? Honestly, I think she needs to be suspended pending some kind of investigation in, into the process of becoming a professional referee. I mean, being uh, a, a big fan of, of fighters going into wars and, you know, giving everything they have and, you know, that you're going to have to kill me to win attitude. I mean, in the first 
you know, few minutes of that fight, you know, that's really what was going on. But the fact that, A, her corner didn't even throw in the towel, and, B, after the girl got knocked down four times in the first round, that is unheard of. And it's completely unsafe. I mean, again, aside from, you know, keeping everything clean with the rules, you know, the referees are there to keep the fighters safe first and foremost from themselves, from their corners. And, and that's not something she did. And I've seen a couple of other the fights that she's officiated recently, uh, a couple in the UFC, I think, the last couple of weeks. And, and I think she's consistently terrible. And it certainly has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman. Uh, officiating has really come under a lot of heat lately, and it's de- deservedly so. I mean, it's, it's, it's terribly inconsistent, as inconsistent as judging, but that's an entirely different topic altogether. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I think to really help Dana White, uh, you know, carry this whole movement forward and make it, you know, the next NFL and the biggest sport in the world in the next five years, it, the referees worldwide need to be consistent. And they need to be protecting the fighters, and that is not what she was doing this weekend. And it left a very disgusting, sour taste in my mouth. Um, and, and I'm a fan of the female fights; I really am. But if she were to do that with anybody else, and you know, have it come out two days later that you know somebody didn't make it out of the hospital, I mean, what would happen then? It would be a, a nationwide collapse of officiating across the country. I mean, it, I couldn't even imagine that happening. Kim Winslow is not the only person to blame here, even though she, I agree with you and she was completely butchering the handling of that fight. Let's not overlook the fact that the commission never should, should have sanctioned this fight. I feel bad for Cyborg that there's nobody in her league, but it is what it is. Oh, I hate that phrase. And let's also throw some blame at the corner of Jan Finney. Now, I know the corner knows her better than anyone else. Is there her corner, her mm-hmm. trainers? But she's in a relationship with Mike Pat, who was in her corner. So there has to, there's nobody looking out for her best interest because Pat and the rest of her corner are going to say, nope, that's what she wants, that's the end of it. But sometimes the fighter, from what I can tell, doesn't know what's in their own best interest. The referee is supposed to be in the cage as an advocate for a downed fighter who can't continue. And Kim Winslow completely overlooked her responsibilities. Green knocked down four times in the first round. That uh, apparently she could not handle Cyborg's power. That that was that's just a period. And then, and if someone's hitting you that way and you and she was being rocked, I mean like it wasn't just it wasn't just that she was dropping her. It was the way she was dropping. She she dropped her and her knees buckled. It looked like she fainted once. And when you go down like that, you're not okay. It's not like one of those drops where you like where you fall back because you got hit hard. It's one of those drops, like, like, it's like, it's like you think it from heat stroke. And when you go down like that, it's, it's, it's a terrible thing. And you shouldn't, no one should ever have to go through that. But, once again, as, as Ryan pointed out, you know, it's her job to look out for both fighters. And Cyborg looked, at one point looked at her and was like, you know, should I hit her again? And then she was asking, yeah. do you want her to stand up? And I was like, do you want her to stand up? Like, do you really think that's the, that's the smartest thing to do, like, right now? Because, I mean, like, at points, she would be on the floor for, like, not even three seconds. She, she'd look at Cyborg. You want her to stand up. And Cyborg's kicking her while she's down. Like, oh, yeah, fine, stand her up. Of course Cyborg wants her to stand up. Imagine the soccer kicks were illegal in that fight. Chan Finney would be no, no, hurting no, no. right now. It wasn't about the soccer kicks. It was like Cyborg was engaging her while she was on the ground. And she acts sideboard while she was engaging her. Does she yeah. want her to stand up? That yeah. that is something I didn't like. Like if they were doing nothing and she goes, "You want her to stand up? All right, she'll stand up. All right, fine. That would have me. So as sideboard was engaging her, asking her if she wanted would, her to stand up. I, I'm glad you pointed that out. That that was very suspect. I was wondering. It was just and all while you you know Frank Shermock, you know usually just says what he wants on these on these uh, compensating kicks here. He was like, oh, they got to end this. Oh, they got to end this. And then when she was asking, do you want her to stand up, while there was some action, uh, the commentators got quiet. I think they didn't uh, to say because people are trying to build the reputation of MMA. They don't want to undermine officials and make it look like they're doing the wrong thing on air. But uh, that is a great point. And to Rich's point, yeah, if this was a pride women's fight, Kim Winslow might have made it out. The <laughs> soccer kicks and stomped around and – with uh, you know, especially with a uh, cyborg training out of shooter box, that just would that would have been done. 
And let's go back to Ryan. Yeah, my, my, my problem with, with the way that she was asking to stand them up is the fact that she wasn't letting the fighters decide and dictate what was going on. There were, I, I believe it was twice where it was Kim's decision to stand them up. And I think it might have been the first time where Cyborg looked over to her was like, what are you doing? I, you know, I might want to go down and engage in the guard or on, on the ground or some kind of grappling battle. But it, it was the shortest decision I've ever seen from any ref in the hundreds or thousands of fights that I've watched that she – I couldn't have been more than three or four seconds where she was like, okay, get up. And, and if Cyborg wanted to fight standing, he's been in the cage often enough to know that if she wants to fight standing, all she has to do is walk backwards 10 feet, and the ref will then make her opponent stand up. She didn't do Absolutely. that. She was content with where the fight was. There, exactly. That's true. Exactly. And also, someone that trains, someone that fights the way Cyborg fights, she would have actually just said, come on, stand up. I mean, you know, we see... We see a lot of folks do that on a regular, not even have walked back, just say, come on, get up. It's kind of that, you know, this case, gentlewoman's agreement. I'm not going to hit you while I get up, but the moment you're in, you know, you're up, it's, it's on. So but I do I'll think just, that. I'll just add, i add to that that when, when you start hearing in a televised broadcast, when the audience is booing the action that is continuing to happen and in the manner like that it was, it, I mean, it is beyond disgusting. It's, it's no longer, you know, a, a thing of sport. It, it becomes, you know, some kind of bloodlust, and it, it's not good for any kind of forward progression for, for MMA. And every time, every time Finney went down, every time Finney went down, you know how you were talking about she didn't just fall back. She she got what what uh, Rampage was telling Rashad. He got the stinky like Cyborg was giving Finney the stinky body. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of stinky leg so, movements. There was, yeah, you know, she was she she was dropping straight down. Her her, her knees were buckling down to her ankles. Like it was a those those were real hard shots. Those were her brain. That, that, that was a brain movement. And actually, a pride fight might have been better for her because she would have socked the kids in the head. She would have had a lot less brain damage than what she actually took. <laughs> so well, I, and I, and I, I kind of disagree with that one right there because it would have been over. And that would well, that's a lot better. And that's one of the reasons why MMA is better than boxing when it comes towards brain damage. Because when because when you go down and you go out, the rest is, the rest is not going to give you an eight count. They're just going to let you go out, boom, bang, over. Not stand you back up, let you get rocked again. Stand you back up, let you get rocked again. Stand you back up, let you get no. That's no. That's a lot of brain damage. And that and that's one of the biggest selling points for MMA is that like yeah 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 it's a lot harder and involves a lot more you know but as for injuries and all that we actually take less we have to take less damage that's the selling point for MMA and that fight killed that selling point it definitely did I mean the news today was um you know uh, Ryan mentioned the, the death of uh, uh, Michael uh, Kirkham. And yeah, people were mentioning that, what you just said, Danny, the whole, you know, you don't have to get back up and then get rocked again. And this did take it away. And another thing I'd want to point to is that also, you know, we've all said it, fighters want to go out. You know, it's like, I'm going to go all the way. This is it. You know, bring me back on my shield. But also, when you've been rocked such, you kind of go into this mode where you're fighting to survive that some people might say Finney could have just, quit she could have tapped but her mind was thinking i have to not get beat so to anyone that says that it's like you know i guess give it a try and then see where your head actually is at that moment so anyone that blames finney i uh find that to no. be very interesting her job is not to find a way out her job is to find a way to win which is why there's a referee there who's supposed to advocate for her, and why there's a corner that's supposed to advocate for her, and a commission that's not supposed to put her into a position that she can't win. Yeah, great. Uh, now, our sound off with Danny Alexis. All right, anybody want to respond to that on different weight classes for MMA sure. and K1? Dirty situation, because, I, I mean... You hear Dana all the time because he gets asked this question all the time, and his response always is related to boxing and how everything is so convoluted and there's belts and everything, you know, and, and there's 47 different belts and 87 different weight classes or whatever. But I, I think once you start getting to the heavier weight classes, I think you really do need to open it up a little bit more. 
I think that strike force and WEC and everything are really um, have everything down in the lower weight classes on a 10-pound range. I think that's fantastic. But I think after you hit 185 pounds and you go 85 to 205 and then to 265, there, there's a lot of weight there. I mean, when you got guys coming from 300 pounds, you know, cutting down to 265 to fight, you know, you know, Randy Couture's walk around at, at two and a quarter naturally anyway. I mean, that that's a huge disparity. I mean, while there may not be uh, so much a need for a quote-unquote super heavyweight division, I definitely think there is uh, a very big need, immediate need for uh, another heavyweight weight class. Call it what you will. At what weight would you put in a uh, a, a new class? Two thirty. Uh, well, I think. I think yeah, I think 225 is a good number because I think 205, you got a lot of guys that can come up from 85 with, you know, a certain amount of weightlifting and eating red steak for, you know, three months. But it's, it, I think there definitely needs to be something in between. Uh, there's the athletes that are coming out now uh, are getting bigger. I mean, you just look at the way the same Carlin moves. I mean, the guy moves around like a natural light heavyweight. I mean, it's unbelievable. And, you know, you throw in, you know, James Tony who is just a fat heavyweight and he's going to have no problem making 265. You know, if God forbid he ever get good and Shane Carlin or somebody actually gets a hold of a guy like that, it's, it's going to be ugly. I mean, that doesn't even seem like a concept to me. And I know Dana always wants to get away from the free show. And I, I think to start separating these, uh, I don't want to call them freak athletes, but evolved athletes, if you will, these, these NFL crossovers and wrestling crossovers, there really needs to be another weight class. So say there definitely does need to be another weight class. And then you also look at uh, certain fighters who might have the weight but might not have the sheer size. Um, and not that that's anyone's fault. I mean, you know, if you're 5'9", maybe you should drop as much weight as possible and get where you're going. But there are some people who, at their size, can move around some bigger guys. But if you're, if you know, if you're under 6 feet, 225, you know, moving, like, I'm thinking about whoever had to go up against Tim Sylvia when he was considered decent. You know, moving a big guy like that, the reach advantage, whereas, you know, like I said, those are all things that come in in any weight class, but I just think when you give up 40 pounds, reach advantage, and height, you really are putting yourself in danger. And, you know, some people say, well, what's 40 pounds? But it depends, it depends on the skill set of the fighter and, you know, you're not matching skill for skill. That's usually what makes the greats the greats and everyone else everyone else. So that's something I think where I, I wouldn't say super heavyweight either because, you know, once you get into certain weight classes, people are just sloppy or if there's yep. not enough of them. You know, like, well, yeah, no, once I, you're like, I would say there's not enough you, of them because they're all, cutting all, they're all cutting so much damn weight to make 205. I mean, like, I mean, like, like, let's say, let's take, for instance, Anthony Rumble Johnson cuts from 230 to 170. That's a ridiculous cut. I mean, yeah, granted, he can make it. That's a freaking ridiculous cut. What is it? Brock Lesnar cuts down to 265 from, like, what, like, three? Brock Lesnar cuts down from, cuts down to 265 from, like, 305, 310 or something, or something like that? Like, I that's a ridiculous that he- now that he's, you know, recovered from his diverticulitis, the highest he got currently was 280, and he's already said he is currently at 265. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, well, he's been sick. He was pushing three bills. I mean, frankly, yeah. like, I, I think 265 is a good number, because personally speaking, I do not want to see, you know, a, an entire weight class of Bob Shafts. Like, I'm not interested in that. And I, I know, yeah. I, I, I think... It, between the Shane Carlins and Brock Lesnar, those guys are so special right now and so few and far between. I think coming up with a number greater than 265 would be a waste of time. And I think it would yeah. be really uninteresting. It would yeah, be irrelevant right. because there just aren't that many athletes who weigh 300 pounds. And the ones that are are playing football. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, Absolutely. like, I, my sound off wasn't about, you know, going to bumps and things. I, I was talking about condensing the weight classes that already, that already exist. Because I agree with Ryan where I do not want to see a bunch of Bob Sapps. But then again, but, but, but then again, you know, I, I do not want to see somebody, somebody walking around at, at, you know, you know, somebody is naturally a 220 fight, fight a guy, fighting a guy cutting to 265. I mean, that, that's such an advantage. And, 
as Alvin pointed out, height, reach, and weight is uh, is a great advantage for a fighter. And if things were more evened out, I think fights would we'd have a lot more more fantastic fights. There, there would be a lot more dream matchups that we'd be able to make. That's that's for sure. And the dream matchups are the one when you know the quickest thing people point to is well the weight class or this or if I go to this weight class I won't be able to get back down or there was the dream fight for a while I think it's winning was Anderson Silva versus Yoda Machida and you know they're best friends and different weight classes so it'll never happen but when you look at how you know Anderson Silva can get heavy he's a pretty heavy dude he does not walk around at 185 at all he walks around at about what 205 215. So, I think the last I heard about that, it was actually close to 220. Yeah, wow. he walked around at 225, 230, Alvin, actually. He, he wow. says it himself. You know, I, I it was like two, like, was it when, when they take the fighters while they're training? He said mm-hmm. that. He's like, he, and he cuts the weight the last two weeks. That's what he said. That I thought that was, I, I want to know what the hell he's doing. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that, that, that's pretty interesting to cut that much that quickly cause, and still be able to, to do what you have to do. So, I mean, then again, he's Anderson Silva, so maybe he knows something we all don't know. But, uh, I'm sure he does. Next... <laughs> yeah, he, he definitely does. So, <laughs> next, we're going to go to Rich's sound off. I think we just need I'll... to appreciate how great of an era we're in right now. I mean, like I said, in the last three months, there have been 25 shows, and even if you want to take Bellator out of that and Challengers, you know, Strikeforce Challengers out of it, there have been 11 major shows, and the only one of them that wasn't fantastic was the Ultimate Fighter finale. But at least we got to see a show where Tito Ortiz was being embarrassed in public, so it was actually by that <laughs> fantastic show. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's, mean, that's why I like you, Rich. <laughs> well, I'm glad someone said some reason. There were five shows total. They sold less than 415,000 combined. Now if the UFC does any individual show that sells less than 415, it's considered an abject failure. This is the golden era of the sport. Right now, it's as good as it's ever been. And I think people are so worried about spreading so much crap out there. And mind you, I'm guilty of that from time to time, too, Tito. And people are worried about, you know, what's going to happen next. And I'm always right, and you're always wrong. If you don't agree with me, I'm right. Dude, relax. We just saw history on Saturday night. We'll get to it. Appreciate what you got right now. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I, I think I, there, there might be a downfall to that at the same time, though. Um, you, you, you saw what the numbers came out for, for the strike force over the weekend with their buys and with the tickets sold. And they pale in comparison to your typical UFC, um, and probably for good reason. But I, I'm hoping more pales in comparison to the UFC. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. But I, I'm I'm hoping that with the the continuing number of events that are happening, that all of these lesser promotions won't be completely overshadowed. Because I, I call a complete suspect in the number of tickets sold to that strike force event because I've never seen anything on live TV with that many empty seats. They were saying they sold just under 13,000 tickets, and I, I don't buy that number for a second. Oh, it was crazy. Well, yeah, it was well, the, I mean, like, I can believe it, but then, again, Ryan, I cannot believe it because Strikeforce, I mean, Strikeforce, I mean, they're, they're, they're such a small show acting like a big show. They're, exactly. they're, they're honestly on Bellator level. They're, they're a Bellator level show. But even Bellator travels from state to state. These, these dudes yeah. just want to hang out in San Jose like like well, there's nobody else, which is another reason why I think people are ignoring them because all they want to do is hang out in San Jose. You know, there are fans all over the world that want to see these fights. You know, why don't you why don't you go to Texas? Why don't you come to Boston? Why don't you try New York? You know, you well, can put out the places. You don't have to rent out the Civic Center every Freaking week. Come on now. Well, actually, I got some point right there because actually, if you take a look at it, I think Bellator. Uh, I've been I've been writing a lot on Bellator and I've been definitely following them, and they to me are the number two promotion in operation. But the Strike Force is all about acquisition. It's who do they have? Oh, they have still the hands down 
best fighter in the in the history, heavyweight in the history of MMA, and one of the best possibly in the history of the sport as time goes on. Lose or not, you know, one suspect loss and then a real loss in 10 years, 32 fights. I mean, come on now. The, guy, the guy's well, that, on the well, The only reason why they have... Well, hold on, hold on. Wait, hold on a second. Then they also have Chris Cyborg. They have Fabrice Ward Doom. They Gegard was someone to talk about. They have a number of likable folks. They've got a Diaz brother. They've got Big Shield. They have personalities. But, as you mentioned, they can't leave their own backyard. But if you look at how much it costs to keep some of these folks, the production can't be something that's not out the can. It's always easier for you. If you threw a cookout in your own backyard, it would be cheaper than you bringing all the equipment, all the people, and all the friends, and paying to use someone else's house. So the reason Strike Force can't really get past that is because they want to have the fighters. Now, Bellator is smart because they're building their fighters. Through the tournament process, you grow an affinity for them, and they prove themselves. It's not, there's no hype needed. But as Rick said, it doesn't matter which promotion it is. MMA as a whole has had a glory, a glory spring and summer. It's been amazing. There's been too many fights that you, if you missed them and you went back to your gym or your circle of friends, you couldn't talk to anybody. And I do think that's a real important point. And let's look to see who might be having some more of those fights. Um, Bellator is being, they're smart. They're taking women's MMA away from Strikeforce. Strikeforce is one person who brutally beats everyone. Bellator is going to have tournaments with folks who've been proven, road tested, and we're going to really see what they can do. So as this golden era, as Rich calls it, goes on, it'll be interesting to see who ends up number two because it looks like UFC is staying number one. Well, I mean, that's you're also only thinking for the U.S. I mean, what about Dream? I mean, Dream, Dream and everything else that goes on in Japan and Korea is, is one of the sole reasons that I have HD net and I pay for that extra channel, which is like 20 or $30 a month just to get the freaking package it comes with. But, it, I mean, if, if you can't – it's unbelievable. I can go on pretty much any time of day and find some fight on some channel, whether it's you know, live or not is a different story. But there are always fights on. It's actually something my girlfriend said to me the other day. You know, I was watching all the the rest of the Strike Force stuff from a couple of weeks ago, the Lawler uh, Sabral fights. Uh, getting ready for this interview and it's just it's like I fight on top of fight on top of fight my DVR and it's driving her crazy but I mean it's definitely it's certainly a good problem to have well it sounds like a great problem and you're right about the international scenario but the one thing is the you are not the casual fan you're not the person that's trying to be baited in for this to become the NFL the MLB people like all of us right here and probably a number of the folks listening they already got us. It's, it's having something that's accessible to people that know you can get these fights. And there's also something which I think people jumped the gun on, but when uh, Melendez beat Aoki at Strike Force Nashville, you know, people are saying Japanese MMA is dead and they're just not as great as, um, you know, American fighters and the style. And I think that was really jumping the gun. Aoki, it all did not rest on his shoulders. I'm sorry. But, yeah, I don't agree with don't get me going on Aoki, like okay? It's not like Japanese <laughs> fighters are going to quit fighting and say, oh, Melendez is better than Aoki. That's it. They're going to adapt. They're going to learn. They're going to incorporate wrestling. And like how you have a new breed of fighters coming in now, like Rory McDonald, who trains MMA. He didn't come in as a wrestler or come in as a jiu-jitsu guy or as a kickboxer. He started training mixed martial arts. You're going to see the Japanese fighters and other international fighters who, you know, and, and, and the British, incorporate wrestling, and in five years, there's going to be another wave of international fighters who can wrestle, which is probably the most important skill right now, because then you can control where the fight goes, and then they're going to come in, and it's a cyclical process, and they're going to take over for a while, and the Brazilians and the Americans are going to go, hey, what's going on here? Why is everyone coming in from Britain and Japan and, 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 and spanking us? And then, then we're going to respond, and they're going to respond, and it's going to keep going, and as the cycles go people are going to realize the sport's not going away. And it's not going to be a, a five-year process like Dana White wants it to be to be the NFL. But it's not going to stop growing. No, no, no Rich. He said it's ten years. Don't worry. There's more time. Ten years. <laughs> exactly. No, but my, but my whole thing is that, see, the only reason why Strikeforce has Fedor is because Fedor wants to fight Sambo. Right? 
And if he goes well, to the yeah, UFC, he can't fight. When was the last time he did Sambo? Usually, whenever he does Sambo, you read about it in the news in the next week. I yeah, can't even remember the last time he did it. Did he get a bronze for the last time he did it? He got a bronze for the last time he did it, I think. Yeah. That is correct. Yeah, he got a bronze medal last time he did. So he, so he was the first, I think it was the first time he didn't win it. But once, but my whole point is that the reason why I like Bellator, why, why, and why, and why, why I, I kind of like Strike Force, you know, for their, for their, you know, their B level fighters, and and, and they're very <laughs> rare, you know, and they're two, and they're, and they're two or three rare, you know, A level fighters. That it's because they they let them fight on other shows. They, they're not keeping them to themselves. The UFC wants to be like, if you're here, you're going to fight our guys. So if, you're, if you don't have a fight, you're not going to get paid until it's time for you to fight. Where, where if you're on Bellator, like, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Who is it? I think Roger Horte, or was it, um, is it Roger Horte that, that, that fought on Dream? Or was it, um, um, no, uh, Eddie what? Alvarez. He, he fights Eddie Trump. Alvarez he fight. fought on Dream. Eddie, Eddie Alvarez is, 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 Roger Horte and Eddie Alvarez are probably, probably two, one of the two top to top people in, in Bellator. And he's letting them fight on another show. Well, yeah, Eddie Alvarez was on Dream before he was on Bellator. He fought Dream, and then they, he, um, I think he was beat by Aoki, and then he wanted to make another appearance. And since it's a tournament format and he's a champ, you know, he was like, I'm not going to get ring rest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in there and fight. Uh, speaking to him, you can tell he truly loves to fight. Like, you know, you talk yeah. to Rampage. He'll say it's a paycheck. Ali Alvarez wants to fight. And I do see what you're saying, Danny, how that makes a lot of sense. But one thing to think about, also the UFC has a different scenario. The UFC has a hype package. They're, they're corporate. They're corporation. So they're protecting all their commodities. They're protecting anything that they need. So I think you should let your fighters fight. Let them get better. Keep them going. But, you know, what would happen if Brock Lesnar was in Japan and had an awkward takedown and tore his shoulder or tore his ACL, you know, right before, you know, three months before this UFC 116, which we're going to talk about next because it is quite possibly the biggest title fight in the history of the UFC, if not MMA. So that's something people have to think about. And then you also have the crossover section of when you have a champion fighting from another promotion, Sometimes it's a debate about is a title on the line, which title's on the line, do titles get unified, how do people argue it. So it's something that you can really look at a lot of different ways. But, I mean, the only people that really win are the fans when you can fight anywhere you want. Because the UFC is absolutely right to, to forbid all co-promotion. They are the top dog, and they have nothing to gain. If they are 85% of the market, they have nothing to gain by allowing access to the other 15% of the market. Bellator and Strikeforce are absolutely right to allow as much co-promotion as possible because they have to make as few, they have a smaller number of big fights that they can make. They have to capitalize on all of those. They have to make Melendez versus uh, Alvarez. They have to get Aoki exposure over here and show that they're a world-class, Strikeforce is a world-class promotion. Just, just from a fan's point of view, I mean, I'm a fighter too. I understand about protecting your commodity. Like, 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 my coaches will never ever let me fight somebody I'm not ready to fight. Like, that's just stupid. Like, you don't put your fight in a position like that. But I understand, I understand about protecting your commodity. But from a fan's point of view, man, do I want to see some matchups? That's all I'm saying. That's just from a fan's point of view. That's that's the big debate right there. It's uh, there's what the fans want to see, and then what's feasible because. This, one thing about this sport, as I do believe it's safer than a lot of professional sports, the physical demands can't, don't allow for the frequency of fights from a fighter. I mean, you have some folks who will be in a, a you know a Grand Prix, Grand Prix and fight three times in a night. You have some folks that will fight, like I think Tyrone Woodley last year, he was undefeated in I think what, four of his six fights, if not more, were in 2009, you know? So... Some people can go like that, and there's some athletes where, you know, if you get two fights a year out of them, you're lucky. You want to put yeah. an example? They talked about Chris McCray from, from the tough finale just now. Ah. That dude fought five times in five weeks, and then he went and lost the finale. And you'd be crazy to think that those five fights had nothing to do with his loss. His body was broke down to some certain degree that they definitely weren't talking about, and I'm sure Dana was talking about it with his people behind the scenes, because it definitely takes away 
from a finale fight. I mean, you're not going to get a guy at his best, you know, two months after him fighting five times in five weeks. You're just not. No. I mean, your body doesn't I, heal that fast. No, 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 no. I agree. I agree with that. But I'm just saying, like, I agree with everything everybody's saying, except for the fact not letting your fighters go fight. Another another promotion, or not bringing people, at least bringing people from another promotion to let them fight. You know, um, exactly. that's just that's well, something I want to see. I like fighting five times in two weeks. What the hell? That's that's retardedly stupid. That's that's retarded. I, there's nothing else to say, but that's retarded. You're not. You're gonna need at least six months to recover from that. Because every yeah, time yeah. you break your so every time like, who is it? If you overtrain for every day you overtrain, you actually have to take a week off. So this dude, this dude overtrained and he fought his heart out on a regular that, basis. That's a lot of time that you have to take off just to yeah. just for your body just to recover. On that note, we're going to move on to some current events. Uh, my sound off comments kind of can go into this. The first one is and. Let's do a let's do a quick. We're gonna go Ryan, Rich, Danny, and then me, Fedor, and what this fight and loss really means to you. So take it, Ryan. Uh, nothing. I, I I don't think it means all that much to me. Uh, I'm not. I mean, I was absolutely surprised by the outcome, but uh, given the lack of depth in the strike force heavyweight division and the fact that they they cut the UFC cut Verdum after. One poor showing, I think it just goes to show that those guys both need to fight again and fight again soon. Um, I, I think the Verdum Alistair Overy mashup isn't as exciting. Uh, I think it's definitely going to be a more technical fight than what the Overeem Fedor fight could have been. Um, but even still, how many people even know who Alistair Overeem is? I mean, personally, I, he's in my like top three for heavyweight pound-for-pound rankings in the world, uh, just given what he can do in MMA and K1. But, uh, yes, it was a surprise, but, yeah, I don't really care. I think I think the big heavyweight fight is this weekend. Rich? I, I think it would be a gigantic mistake for Strike Force to book the rematch as the next fight. I think that Fedor Melianenko is extremely smart to want to get his win back. I think Fabricio Verdun is very cagey to want to get a big money fight against uh, Fedor instead of a smaller money fight against Overeem, who, like you properly said, nobody in the States knows who he is. But Fedor has one fight left on his contract. When he was interviewed, he said, I am going to fight my remaining fight with Strikeforce. He didn't say I'm going to fight my remaining fight with Strikeforce, and I plan to stay with Strikeforce. He's going to be one and done with Strikeforce, and it would be a huge mistake for Strikeforce to let Verdum fight Emelianenko again, because if, as expected, Fedor wins that fight, then all they've done is proven that Verdum's win is a fluke. They need to build on Verdum while they can, put him in against Overeem, who, mind you, could use some building up, but, he, you know, Scott Coker put him in this mess. you got to make the best with, you know, of, of the situation at hand that you have. And then they let the winner of that fight, Fedor Emelianenko. But you cannot let... Fedor's final fight on his strike force contract be to get his win back. This isn't professional wrestling where you give up your win and then you get your heat back the next night and you alternate and everyone has a 500 record. I completely yeah. agree with that. Absolutely. For me, the whole fight, because like, I'm obviously a fan, a writer, and um, trying to turn fighter, but we won't talk about that for a few more months. Um, <laughs> but the way it all works out for me is um, following this so closely, I always felt every time I watched Fedor, this is, could be the fight he lost. He didn't have the invincibility that Brock Lesnar seems to have, even though he did lose to Frank Mir, um, or just a number of other athletes in general. Like, uh, you know, to take it completely away from fighting, when you watched Michael Jordan, you were wondering, so how many points is he going to have? Is he going to dunk from pretty much the free throw line? You weren't worried about was he going to win or not because he won more often than not, so it appeared in his glory time. With Fedor, I never feel like uh, it's guaranteed, and I feel like sometimes he wins in spite of himself. He's great. He's amazing, but he's kind of got that, you know, looks like he's down and out and then comes back. I call it like the Big Nog syndrome. Big Nog will pretty much get stomped on, and then all of a sudden he pulls off something. 
So for yeah. me, this wasn't. Pardon me. I, I was just going to say, point in case the Arlovsky fight. I mean, he was losing until that moonshot overhand right. Exactly. That's exactly, and that's what I'm talking about. It's just, it's not that there's a dominance, is I guess the word I could have summed up that long rant I went on. So for me, I was not too surprised. Um, I just thought that the way it happened was nothing from Wardoom. It took a long time. I think it was a 68-second submission. <laughs> um, it took a long time, you know, for it to happen. It was almost like he wasn't trying his hardest to get out. And at times, I could have got out, but I, you know, I, I didn't. I did this or whatever. I think he played it a bit cocky because he always, it always dramatically worked out for him. So for me, I think it was more of a showing, but uh, more of a showing of how he's, uh, he's just a guy, you know. He's, he's a human. But I do think what's next is... But what I do think is going to come from this is there's now a chance for him to climb back up, and this is what, you know, legends are made of, that loss, and then he goes on another five-year win streak, if possible. So I think it actually is really great for the sport, and I think people are quick to jump off his bandwagon or quick to jump on. I should just hold tight and see what happens, because a lot of it depends on where he ends up. Um, You know, he hasn't fought the best in a while. He may be the best. Far from it. Exactly. So, honestly, you say that about bandwagon, and there's one bandwagon that I'm actually jumping on, and it's neither of the two you just mentioned. I'm actually beginning to believe in the rumors of his retirement, particularly due to his lack of reaction after that fight. I understand you're, you know, the big, scary, stoic Russian, but you just lost for the first time in a decade, and you're not even going to, you know, fame one way or the other, that you're mad or upset or you're okay with it. I, I think he's beginning to show that he understands that he's done without so much as coming out and just saying it. And then well, there's I also the, the, there's the rumors that, he, you know, he's on a ballot for some kind of local office back where he's from. Um, you know, he might be doing the turn to politics, let's get out of this thing, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if those are substantiated or not, so I won't run with it, but... Yeah, indifference is different than uh, benevolence, and uh, he was he was highly indifferent. Um, and I, like you, you know, you guys mentioned, he said, "I have my one more fight. I have one fight left with Strikeforce." He didn't say anything. So there's, it depends. I mean, and also, if he goes to the UFC, is a Fedor ready for Shane Carlin, a Brock Lesnar? Is a Fedor ready for Frank Mir? I mean, that's a question. We know. You know, is he is he ready to take on uh, Big Nog again? He, is he now this is the one I'm going to throw out there. Is he ready for? I would say Junior DeSantos. Is he ready for Cain Velasquez? You know, there's these explosive guys that don't have that sit wait back. You know, I'm going to let you catch me. They don't make mistakes for the most part. So that's interesting. Dan, do you have anything quick to say? I just say Fido just showed that he was human. You know, he left his arm in a weird position that I've never seen him leave it there before. Um, it'd be interesting to see what he does after if he goes to USC, I would love to see that happen. But is he ready for these guys? I don't know. Gotcha. Alright, so now on to this this weekend's uh I I mean, this is the biggest card I think, you know, UFC one seventeen actually looks like it has a better card, but UFC one sixteen, Lesnar versus Carwin. You know, the main event might be the biggest fight in the history of UFC and, if not, MMA altogether. Rich, give me your take on this. Well, it might not be the best card of the year, but it's definitely the best event of the year. That's the word we're looking for. The return of Brock Lesnar against somebody who is as close to his physical equal as we're going to ever see. Not to mention all the questions about Lesnar and his rehabilitation, his recuperation. There are so many stories built into this that, yeah, it's going to come really close to the buy rate of UFC 100. I don't think it's going to surpass it, though, because the undercard is much weaker. And so people who are on the fence about it might not be tipped over by a, a co-main event of Akiyama versus Levin. Uh, yeah. I think it's a fantastic card. I do not understand for the life of me why Soshinsky versus Bonner is being televised on one of the biggest events they've ever put on when the last time they fought they were on the unaired prelims of the lowest selling UFC pay per view in four years. Well, look at the well, rest I, of the card. There's nobody that, else to bump up. 
Well, I, I, I also think that might be that might be an excuse for, okay, both of you guys, we've been trying to champion you, but neither of you is winning, so don't feel bad when we touch you. We let you shine one last time. Uh, you know, Bonner, how many fights has he lost in a row? I think uh, four. Three, I believe. It's not. Three, right? Yeah, I mean, three. he's about to hit Keith Jardine's status, and you know Keith Jardine was recently let go after four. There's nothing anyone can do for you at that point. You know, that's just there's nothing anyone can do. But uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I do those guys get picked up like sloppy seconds from strike force, but I mean, oh, that seems to be the nature of their business. Bonner won yeah. real fights in a row to Sloshinsky, Coleman, and Jones, and he had two wins before that, which were Red Schaefer. Uh, fighting out of Duke Rufus' camp in Milwaukee, and Mike Nichols. Not exactly world beaters. No, no. And the thing, the thing is with uh, Bonner, he also, he's uh, an MMA live. He's kind of a, uh, he's kind of easing into the Charles Barkley side of things, you know. So I, I can see that for him. Uh, he has to the subside of the cage, and I'm really hoping that even if he does lose it, that he realizes that, hey, you know, I've got my health. I've got a job for life with the UFC. I'm marketable, you know. And but that's he's the not thing. UFC level anymore. No, and to be the and he's also, I mean, he and Forrest are the number one most important fight in the UFC until I think uh, this fight happens. But right now, you know, if you ever watch any of those super long uh, spike marathons, that's the fight. Uh, you know, you play the game. It says recreate the fight between Forrest Griffin and Stephen Bonner. So. There you have it. Now, what we're here doing this show right now. Pardon me? I said, Stephen Bonner and Forrest Griffin, that fight is the reason we're here doing this show right now and why people are willing to take their time out of their day to listen to us talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah, that, it put every, I mean, it put UFC more on the map than it could have ever imagined. So now I want to quickly go into this middleweight bout. Um, it's uh, Yoshihiro Akiyama versus Chris Lieben, but it was originally going to be Akiyama versus uh, Vondelay Silva. Do you think, uh, I'm going to go to Ryan with this one first, that Lieben will, will hold the same weight as a draw? Not so much in skill. We all pretty much know what Lieben's about, and Lieben knows what Lieben's about. But do you think he'll hold a relative weight that uh, uh, Silva would have held? I don't know if he'll hold the same weight um, in, in terms of garnering interest to, you know, help buy up on this card. But, I mean, he is a fairly known guy. Uh, he's been around the UFC for a while. And big props to him for stepping up to that level of competition. But, I mean, nobody can be under the delusion that Akiyama Lieben is anything like Akiyama Vondelay. Uh, and I can understand why Akiyama was set, or upset this week and, you know, hinting at, pulling out of the fight altogether and scratching it, which, which you know, I think would have kind of been a little short-sighted on his part if he did do that. Um, but, it, you know, it's one guy stepping up to fight another guy, and then a lot of those cases you, you can come out with something special and you get the guy that steps up to move up. But I, I think the, the story there is, is Akiyama going to fight like he did last time because I was not impressed by that. I, I think he's got to really show uh, significant improvement inside the cage, and he's got to come out and finish leaving in, I think, near spectacular fashion uh, to cement himself those Bumway Silva type fights in the near future. Uh, but I, honestly, I think that the fight of the night on that card is Kurt Pellegrino, George Sonoropoulos. Uh, you have Matt Brown and Chris Lytle being, you know, a potential uh, Leonard Garcia, Kim kind of fight, uh, but, you know, Lytle hasn't really ever impressed me, and Matt Brown is just a, a rugged slugger. But I think the Kurt Pellegrino fight is, is going to be super technical, and I'm calling that right now. It's fight of the night. Nice. And you know what? Uh, unless they just give it to the, the title belt because it's the title belt. It's definitely looking that way. Though I do think, depending if if, Lieb, if Lieben can really run wild, that could be fight of the night. Uh, Akiyama did not impress that much at UFC 100. I mean, um, so that's questionable. But I'd say um, either that bout or the Pellegrino Sotaropoulos, that, that could do it. Danny, your take. Um, I still want to see the fight. I don't, I don't think that it's – I think it's a it, – it, it definitely is not – it doesn't, doesn't attract much of a, of a draw. As you know, it would whatever before, but 
it's, I still want to see the fight. Like, I mean, like, because it's going to be a different approach for both fighters. So I yeah, that's what Akiyama was talking about. I want to see how 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 they change their their game plan. You know, well, maybe not not for leaving, but definitely for Akiyama. It's going to be different well, approach because he's been training for one type of fighter, and all of a sudden he gets another type of fighter. So it's it's funny because Akiyama said that, but um, you know, if, it, it's been said. You, well, it's Chris Lieben, you know, barring he's gotten some extra set of skills, because his skills aren't sharp, but a whole new set, you know what you've got. It's almost, it might actually be, you know, if you've trained for Vondelay, well, you already kind of knew what you'd have to do for Lieben. The only thing is to just not get caught, and that's really what it is. So I do find well, that. Really, what the, I mean, if you think about what the game plan with Vondelay Silva was going to be, it's essentially the same thing, with exactly. a lot less pressure. Exactly. That's exactly it. Just don't get caught, and and you could be good to go. Yeah, there are two stories here: the politics of what happened behind the scenes, and then the fight itself. If Akiyama, well, when Silva pulled out because of his injuries, and Levin came in, Akiyama was making waves. Let's make no mistake; those waves were to get more money out of Dana White. That's all it was. It works. There you go. If he was serious, if I'm wrong, and he was serious and was thinking about pulling out, if he would have pulled out, his next fight would have been against Kazuo Masaki and Dream, and he never would have fought in UFC again, and he's here for a reason. That would have been suicide. He knew it going in. He was posturing for money, and good for him. The fight is gone. He's going to get caught, and Levin's going to knock him out. There you have it. Look at that. Um, you know, I think a lot of people want to see that, actually. That seems to be... Uh, a water cooler thing. People want to get behind Lieben and see him just knock him out. All in right, Akiyama's everybody. Defense, in Akiyama's defense, it will definitely be the sexiest knockout of his career. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. So there you have it. Danny, what do you have to say? I think I think Cyborg's sexy the way she can just take somebody out. And I will oh, love you crazy women do that. All yeah, right. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Fighters and Writers on MMATorch.com. I'm Alvin Carter, MMA Torch Specialist. We have Ryan McDermott. We have Rich Hansen. And we have Danny Alexis. Please look online to see what's up and coming from us. And thank you so much for listening. I had to stop this when uh, Danny professed his love for Chris Cyborg. <laughs> I'm all about the ink. And it'll chill down.